0: I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. For the longest time, when you would think about the most powerful person in the world, the person that probably came to mind was the president of the United States, the leader of the free world. But in 2023, I suspect the person that comes to mind for most people these days, when you say, who is the most powerful person in the world, isn't an elected official at all. Instead, A lot of people picture a 52-year-old civilian who, through his own determination, fantasies, ambition, and sheer will, has amassed an enormous amount of wealth, more than any other person on this planet. And also an enormous amount of influence over just about every industry that will define the future of the global economy. To anyone I've offended, I just want to say I reinvented electric cars, and I'm sending people to Mars in a rocket ship. Of course. Did you think I was also going to be a chill, normal dude? (laughs) I'm talking about none other than Elon Musk. Why is Elon Musk permitted by shareholders, employees, his board to behave in mm-hmm. a way that no other CEO in the world can act? Is it all just, well, he controls his board and he's made a lot of money for shareholders with Tesla.
1: People just put up with it because they like to be part of the Elon Musk uh, circus that he conducts on a 24-7 basis all across the globe. I'll say what I want to say. And if, 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 uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it.
0: Elon's biography is too vast to sum up in a little intro here, but that's why I've invited on my guest today, Walter Isaacson, who has spent the past two and a half years doing just that, summing up Elon Musk's life to the tune of about 700 pages. Isaacson is an award-winning biographer of people including Henry Kissinger, Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, and Jennifer Doudna. But this recent undertaking has no doubt been his most complicated one to date. That's because the person he's writing about has a story that's very much still unfolding. In fact, when Walter Isaacson started writing this biography, Musk hadn't even purchased Twitter yet, perhaps his most controversial move to
1: date. The Elon before Twitter and the Elon after Twitter are two different Elons. And Elon didn't just break Twitter, uh, uh, Twitter broke Elon Musk. And so, you know, the Elon of today is not beloved by everybody. He's not
0: What does it mean for a single man to control one of the most powerful digital public squares? Also, the most powerful private satellite internet company. Also, the most successful electric car company. AI, space travel, and oh yeah, whatever it is that the boring company does. We've gotten a glimpse into what exactly it means for the world During the past year, with two hot wars raging, one in Ukraine and now one in the Middle East, wars with enormous geopolitical consequences and stakes that Elon Musk has inadvertently become a part of. According to SpaceX, there are around 20,000 Starlink terminals in Ukraine. And they've been vital for soldiers' communication, flying drones, and artillery targeting. Starlink is the glue, really, between the forward-deployed drone and the artillery that's conducting uh, uh, the strike against Russian positions. Take, for example, how when Israel briefly cut off internet inside of Gaza as part of their war strategy to eliminate Hamas.
1: Elon Musk has said SpaceX's Starlink will support communication links with internationally recognized aid organizations in Gaza. A phone and internet blackout in the Gaza Strip has cut people.
0: Elon took to Twitter and announced that he was going to provide it himself through Starlink. After widespread criticism, he posted a head-exploding emoji. And then when a commenter suggested that he must have felt pressure to provide the coverage, Elon simply responded, yeah, with a frowny face. Musk apparently then met with the head of Shin Bet, Israel's internal security service, and announced that he would, quote, double-check with Israeli and U.S. security officials before enabling any connections. The point, as my friend writer Jacob Siegel put it on Twitter, naturally, is that non-state kingmakers are redefining the scope of warfare through direct intervention. And then there's Elon's power over information, the information that all of us consume on Twitter. It's hard to imagine under Twitter's previous regime that we would have had access to the raw, violent footage from Hamas's massacre— And this is thanks to Elon's version of Twitter, which is less censorious than the previous guard. Being able to see what Hamas did was enormously important to be able to understand everything that followed. And yet, with those loosened rules, there's also disinformation, genuine disinformation, that's being spread at a pace like never before. Scores of people, including our elected officials, like Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, are posting horrifying photos and videos of crying children from Gaza, except they are actually children from Syria from 2013. That transformation of Twitter has also meant the encountering of anti-Semitism, bald and explicit, in ways that I never encountered it before. All of this is to say that this one man wields an enormous amount of influence from social media to warfare. And the question is, should he?
1: And so he's got this sort of a God complex, I think, in many ways. Um, I'll say what I want to say and so be it is kind of his policy. And ultimately, it
0: has not he hasn't paid a price for it in any way. That's the theme of my conversation on today's episode with Walter Isaacson. Please note that I spoke to Walter a month ago now. Actually, it was just a few days before Hamas attacked Israel. The world feels like a very different place in that short month. But the core of the conversation is just as, if not more, relevant today. Stay with us. Walter Isaacson, welcome to Honestly.
1: Hey, thank you, Barry.
0: Like so many other people in this country and maybe around the world, I tore through your new 670-page biography, which is titled simply Elon Musk. And I found myself struck by a few themes, but I think one of them is the theme of power and specifically whether Elon Musk, who is the richest man in the world, has too much of it not necessarily too much money, but too much power, too much power in private enterprise, too much power in foreign policy, too much power in his family life and his romantic life. And arguably, and I want to talk about this later in the podcast, maybe too much power over journalists like you and me. So that's where I want to start.
1: Well, the answer is pretty simple. There's a simple answer, which is yes, he does have too much power. But then if you want to drill down deeper, it's like, okay, how come? And one reason is this all-in hardcore intensity that causes him to make engineering things work. We can leave aside Twitter for the moment, but you know, when I first started this book, every other car company had gotten out of the electric vehicle market almost. They were smashing the cars. He went to the edge of bankruptcy and not only designed good electric vehicles, but he designed factories in America that can make them at scale. So just this year, he's made a million electric vehicles more than all the other car companies in America combined, fourfold. Likewise, NASA quit trying to send people to the moon 50 years ago or so. It gave up on sending astronauts to the space station when it grounded the space shuttle a dozen or so years ago. Musk has been able to launch more satellites into space and reuse the rockets in any company. In fact, this year, he will send, I think, 1,600 tons of payloads and satellites into orbit, which is more than every other country, every other company... Combined. And not only that, it's four times as much as every company combined. This gives you enormous power when you're the only person who can launch U.S. military spy satellites into high Earth orbit. Boeing can't do it, NASA can't do it. And likewise, of course, in Ukraine, his was the only satellite and communication system that survived, which is why he comes to the rescue of the Ukrainians uh, and who would have been crushed because they were no longer able to communicate with their troops. As I'm sure we'll get into, that gave a boy too much power on how to handle those sort of things. But besides just saying, yes, he has too much power, the book shows how did he accrue it. So in other
0: words, it's not necessarily a knock on Musk for his will to power. It's in a way a knock on so many of the systems, including the American federal government, that has failed and he has sort of stepped into the breach. 100%.
1: I mean, we used to be a nation of great risk-takers, and, you know, that's how you get rockets into orbit or make an electric vehicle company. And wherever you came from, it's likely your family took risks, whether they came, you know, from Europe uh, fleeing oppression or whether they came on the Mayflower or they came across the Rio Grande. But now we've become a country more filled with referees than risk-takers, more Mm. filled with regulators and lawyers and guardrail builders than innovators. And I think that's made us sclerotic as a country. Mm. We don't have the factories that we used to have to build things. We don't shoot off the rockets the way we used to. And Musk is not only a risk-taker, he's risk-addicted. I mean, it comes from a childhood... Uh, That was a very brutal childhood, but he associated risk with pleasure in some ways. Peter Thiel, who helped found PayPal with him, said, you know, most entrepreneurs take risks, but Elon runs towards them, embraces them. There's a picture in my book at one of the birthday parties his second wife, Tallulah Riley, threw for him, and he's up against a target, and there's a... Blindfolded knife thrower throwing things at him, and he has a pink balloon uh, right at his crotch.
0: And right. a shit eating grin on his face.
1: Right. And there's no upside to taking that risk. Right. I mean, and there's a lot of downside if you picture the <laughs> balloon. And yet, he was so addicted to risk, he did that. There's many,
0: many instances in the book of the way that when things are sort of calm and peaceful, he creates sort of a whirlwind, almost like a war around him, which we'll get into. Briefly, Walter— I think of you as, you know, the man drawn to genius. You have written award-winning biographies of some of the greatest minds, the greatest innovators that have walked this country and this planet, Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, Henry Kissinger, Benjamin Franklin, Jennifer Doudna, most recent book: Steve Jobs, and now, of course, Elon Musk. There are three things combined that I think set Musk apart from these other subjects. First, as we just discussed, he has an amazing amount of power. Many of these other people did, so does he. The second is that he is unbelievably polarizing. I can't tell you the number of people while I was reading this book who would come up to me and say, ugh, I can't believe you're reading that when I'd be sitting in a cafe or something like that. Just revulsion. And then other people came up to me and said, I kind of love that guy, right? He is unbelievably polarizing, even even the cover of this book. Obviously, there are people who are selling their Teslas because they refuse to drive a car that he created. Other people are buying them up. Very, very polarizing. Some of these other people also were. But the third is that he is alive. And so you needed him to cooperate with you. You could, in fact, say that you needed him more than he needed you. So what do you do when you're trying not only to write about the richest and arguably most powerful private person in the world, but you need him to cooperate with you? How do you deal with that imbalance of power? You've talked about, you've written about in the book how there were absolutely no guardrails. You could ask him anything, but I'd love if you can reflect a little bit just on that the dynamic of sort of trying to capture someone who you need to cooperate in order for the book to come out in the way you want it to.
1: It was surprisingly easy. I told him at the very beginning, I said, I don't want to do this book based on 10 or 15 interviews. I want to spend two years whenever I want by your side, morning, noon, and night. And he went, okay. And then I said, and the other caveat is, Yeah, I got no control over this book. You know, I'm not even going to let you read it in advance before it's published. He went, okay. And it was weird to me, but he has this sense of transparency. And so when I was there, whether it be walking the factory floor or sleeping in a trailer next to his launch pad in South Texas, I kind of receded in the background. I just took notes. I observed, and he did not seem to care. As you know, because you've dealt with him, He's an intense person, but not a person with a whole lot of emotional incoming or outgoing signals. He's uh, talked about being Asperger's. He's definitely on the autism spectrum. And it wasn't as if he was ever trying to push me to do something. And I never felt in any way threatened that I had to curry his favor anyway because he didn't seem to care.
0: When you first started writing this biography a few years ago, Elon Musk had a very different persona, at least in the public sphere. I think the most controversial things he had done up until that point were he had openly tweeted his disdain for COVID lockdowns. He had smoked a blunt on Rogan, but a lot has changed in the past few years.
1: Yeah, you know, it was amazing because I was, um, you call him the most polarizing figure and he definitely is now. And we have trouble in this day and age, holding in our head the fact that somebody can be an absolutely amazing engineer when it comes to doing a Raptor engine that Boeing and NASA can't figure out, but also be polarizing and say god-awful things on Twitter. And what happened in the middle of this journey, when I started it, he was Not all that polarizing. He was person of the year. Exactly. He was person of the year (laughs) in the Financial Times. He had brought us into the era of electric vehicles, brought us into the era of space adventuresome. And then, as you said a moment ago, he was born for the storm. When things are going too well, he tells me at the beginning of 2022, I said, man, you know, richest person on earth now, person of the year. He said, it doesn't make me feel comfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I was born for a storm and he likes to go all in and shake things up. And I'm just like, well, what are you gonna do? He says, I'm gonna buy Twitter. And that, of course, in my mind, was a mistake because he doesn't have the fingertip feel, finger spits and gefuel, as we would say, for emotional, human feelings the way he does for the difference between Inconel and carbon fibers and stainless steel uh, material properties. And then he becomes wildly polarizing. Now, what you got to do when you're writing about this or, frankly, reading about it is you have to keep multiple things in your head at the same time. What makes him polarizing, I think 80% of it, is basically Twitter, now called X, both what he tweets on it and the way he runs it and the way he's opened it up and his political evolution from being a Barack Obama fundraiser to being somewhat in that rabbit hole of alt-right, or at least retweeting or commenting on people who are in that sphere. That's where the controversy comes from. But it doesn't affect the fact that he makes rockets and batteries, and you got to keep both in your head at the same time. I'm capable of
0: keeping both in my head at the same time. Just want to clarify, would you characterize Elon Musk's politics as
1: alt-right? No, I tried to sort of modify it in the middle of that sentence, I think he amplifies a lot of what I would call Tucker Carlson himself and Tucker Carlson fans. I don't use the word conservative, uh, which a lot of people do, because to me that ain't what conservatism was all about. I think he's hard to classify, which is good. I think he's a populist, sometimes believer... In conspiracy theories, but on the other hand, a lot of those conspiracy theories turned out to have a kernel of truth to them. So it's complex, and once again, you got to hold some complex things in your head. As you said, it started um, even with COVID lockdowns, and he was just furious about COVID lockdowns, and then furious that Twitter was uh, repressing things like people wrote the Barrington Declaration, saying that lockdowns are going to cause more harm. the virus might. Now, I've written a whole book on Jennifer Doudna, RNA technology. I'm pretty good at biochemistry. I'm still not sure exactly what the right balance was, but I do know we should have had more of a debate over that right balance. So when I look at Musk's politics, there's a long sections in the book about his evolution of his politics from being a conventional Barack Obama supporter but I don't put a three-word label on it.
0: As you are writing the book and he decides, which of course we'll come to, the decision to buy Twitter, and he believes he's born for the storm, that's obviously true. He creates a storm when one is not present on a sunny day. Did you ever have a moment of saying to yourself this isn't the right time for this book because this man is so clearly in the midst of an evolution. Better for me to sort of continue on and see where it lands. Yeah. Did you ever have a moment of saying this isn't the right time for this book?
1: Yeah. I mean, when when he bought Twitter or decided to start doing so, say March, April of 2022, I thought, well, that, A, is going to make the book a whole lot more interesting, more of a roller coaster, and it's going to extend the book. You know, who knows? I'll end it two, three, four years from now. We'll see. But after a while, I did not want Twitter to become some vortex that sucked the whole book in. Kimball Musk, his brother, said that's going to be a pimple on the ass of his legacy. It's not an important thing. I don't think it's unimportant, and I think it's very revealing of his character— but I did not want the book to be sucked down on what I consider amongst the less interesting and less capable things he's doing. And so then when he finally was able to get Starship to launch, even though it explodes after it reaches the edge of space after three minutes, and when he's able to start his own AI company and he's able to get Optimus the robot to walk, and he's able to get Neuralink chips, FDA approval to put them in human trials. I thought, okay, the book doesn't end with him figuring out what to do on Twitter. The book ends with him back on his real passions, which are robotics, artificial intelligence, space travel, and sustainable energy.
0: Just those small topics. (laughs) If there's a theme to Elon Musk's life today, it's about the unbelievable reach of his power. But if there is a theme to the story that you tell about his upbringing, it's really the story of Powerlessness and pain. Here's what you write. As a kid growing up in South Africa, Elon Musk knew pain and he learned how to survive it. You quote Grimes, the mother of three of Elon Musk's children who we'll get to, who told you that Elon, quote, got conditioned in his childhood that life is pain. He was bullied at this wilderness survival camp that sounds like Lord of the Flies, where bullying, as you write, was considered a virtue. But he was also bullied at his school. One time, a group of boys sort of cornered him and beat him so badly, he was hospitalized for a week. An experience that you write affected him for the rest of your life. Here's what Elon told you about it. If you have never been punched in the nose, you have no idea how it affects you for the rest of your life. While those regular physical beatings were surely traumatic— you write that, quote, those scars were minor compared to the emotional ones inflicted by his father. Tell us a bit about those scars. Tell us a little bit about
1: Errol Musk. After Elam was beaten, as you said, in the playground of his high school one time, he had to go to the hospital for almost a week. And when he comes home, his father makes him stand for more than an hour in front of him. while his father tells him how worthless he is, how stupid he is. And takes the side of the kid who beat him up. That instills a lot of demons. And sometimes you can turn demons into drives, as Musk has done. But sometimes demons still remain demons. And as Grimes said, he goes in the demon mode and he's like his father. He will suddenly shift into a dark mode and be kind of quiet. He won't physically be abusive, he won't even yell, but he will be cold and callous and cruel at times. And it's almost like Jekyll and Hyde. When he gets into that mode, it's hard to break him out of it. And then when he comes out of it, he hardly remembers what he did. And so I think those are the type of demons that were instilled in his childhood and makes him associate sometimes love with pain and with storm. He's a drama addict, as his brother Kimball said— And so he'd go to the corner of the bookstore, no friends, scrawny, uh, you know, Asperger's, as he says, and read the superhero comic books. And he said, they were all trying to save the world, you know, they were wearing their underpants on the outside, so they looked ridiculous, but at least they were trying to save the world. So he comes out of this experience with a love for drama, a love for risk-taking, and this sort of... I'm a scrawny kid, but I'm going to become the epic superhero of my own comic book. In a way, it's sort of the oldest
0: trope in the world. You know, someone trying to outrun their daddy issues, trying to outrun the long shadow of the man that tortured them, but ending up echoing it, replicating it, becoming it themselves. And you hear that reflected in so many of the many women, uh, especially that Elon has been with that mothered some of his children. Do you think he's aware
1: of that? May Musk, his mother who obviously divorced the father early on, said to me at the very beginning, here's what you got to write about. The danger for Elon is he becomes his father. And as you say, it's the oldest trope. It's Luke Skywalker, the epic hero, discovering who Darth Vader really is and fighting the dark side of the force. There are times when Musk is self-aware and almost humorous about it. Knowing that he's Captain Underpants playing epic hero, dark side of the force fighting, and he can joke about himself. But there were times when he would go into demon mode and he wouldn't be self aware, he'd just be cold and angry, and you just had to sit back and be quiet and wait it out.
0: The obvious criticism, and several sort of have brought this up in reaction to your biography, of starting with the abuse that Elon suffered in childhood is that it justifies his cruelty or it justifies his demon mode. Some have said that they feel the book sort of uses Elon's past, uses Elon's issues with his father to sort of justify his behavior. And I wanted to let you respond to those criticisms.
1: Yeah, no, no. And it's very interesting because when you explain and try to understand the forces that make a person it can seem like you're edging into justifying or excusing the forces. There are a lot of people with really bad childhoods who turn out to be perfectly nice. And there are a lot of people who are total jerks who had really good childhoods. So (laughs) I'm not trying to justify what Musk does, but what a biographer tries to do is give you the narrative story and help you understand What happened. And that sometimes becomes a cautionary tale. Like, okay, he had all these demons and he succumbs at times to them or makes them too cruel. But I think each reader should make a judgment, and each reader will. I mean, everybody has a judgment on Musk. I give you the true facts of that childhood, I give you his father's side as well, and his brother's side, and everybody who knew him then. And If you think that justifies his really bad behavior, that's on you. That's not on me. And if you say, wow, I get where he's coming from, but that doesn't excuse him doing this, that's sort of the camp I'm in.
0: There are two diagnoses of conditions that are brought up in the book. You mentioned one before, autism spectrum disorder or Asperger's, and the other is bipolar. And there's a a very sort of harrowing set of scenes during one of his down periods, during one of his storms where Elon sort of can't get up from a conference room floor and people have to take meetings laying side by side with him. And one of them sort of says to him in sympathy and true concern, do you think you might have bipolar? This is a person that has a relative with bipolar. And Elon says, you know, maybe I do. Uh, The guy suggests getting treatment never happens. You spent a lot of time with Elon. Do you think that he has either of those disorders? Um, Or do you think in a way those are his ways of excusing uh, his selfishness or his bullheadedness or his, you know, maniacal focus? They're crutches for him to explain away his character.
1: Oh, I definitely think he's got, you know, psychological differences, especially in terms of emotional receptors, in and out emotional receptors. You know, he says he has Asperger's. I don't think he's, like, making that up to justify his cruelty. I don't try to be a psychiatrist. He's never been in therapy and fully diagnosed. But, yeah, he goes into deep manic and catatonic states, as we describe in the book, uh, where he can't even get off the floor. And uh, I don't know, is your question, does he, is he faking those? Uh, it's no, not. I don't think he's faking uh, being in a catatonic state on the floor of the factory where John McNeil, the North American president of Tesla, is trying to shake him and get him up to go onto an earnings call. I mean, this is a complicated question. We as a society are pretty good at dealing with people's mental issues. If they're depressive, for example, we get it, we understand it. Then the question becomes, does that excuse things? And I think I'm going to let each person decide what do you excuse and what do you don't. Musk really does have these deep psychological moods and states and... You can see both the intensity of his focus, but also the emotional lack of receptivity. And that makes him a jerk. Or there's a technical term you probably don't use on your podcast that begins with A. (laughs) And I don't know that we need to condone that. But it's not bad to understand that it exists.
0: Oh, I mean, there's a moment in the book where Grimes, who I think has a lot of insight in this book, she says, he has numerous minds and many fairly distinct personalities. He moves between them at a rapid pace. You feel the air in the room change, and suddenly the whole situation is just transferred over his other state. I saw that in the weeks we spent at Twitter. What I'm getting at, and then we can move on to so many other things, does he own that? I felt sometimes like he would enter into kind of this dark, vacant place And then the next day, he could be completely sunny and different, and he almost didn't remember how he was the night before.
1: Exactly. And no, he doesn't own it. And perhaps he should. But I'm so glad you saw it. You saw it with your own eyes, just like Grimes, Oh. like I did. Yeah, totally. And he doesn't own it. The next day, I went back to a whole lot of people he reamed out, you know, Andy Krebs, Lucas Hughes, you know, people who get into his line of fire when he's in demon mode. I said to them, what happened? He says, well like two days later, I'd be talking to him and he had no memory of doing that to me.
0: Yeah. Um, So from this scrawny, bullied kid in South Africa... To the many, many times over, the billionaire of today. We only have so much time together. I'm going to attempt to do an extraordinarily foolish thing and summarize all of Elon Musk's career in the span of a single question because we could spend many hours on each of his companies. So bear with me. At age 24, Elon Musk drops out of his Stanford PhD program and starts his first company with his brother Kimball, who's throughout the book. And this company is called Zip2. It was kind of a digitized version of the Yellow Pages directory with Maps. Four years later, Zip2 is acquired for $307 million. Elon, age 28, gets $22 million out of that deal. He describes his bank account going from like a few thousand dollars to $22 million and $5,000 and changes his life. And from there, and you document all of this in your biography, it's really just boom, 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 boom. There's almost not a minute of downtime aside from a few days he sometimes spends at Larry Ellison's Island in Hawaii. He founds PayPal, which goes public in 2002. Musk makes something like 250 million, much of which he uses to start SpaceX in that very same year, a company that manufactures and launches rockets that wants to take us to Mars. In 2004, two years later, he becomes Tesla's largest shareholder and later its CEO. About a decade later, he develops Starlink, which has since sent thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit, providing coverage to over 60 countries. In 2016, he co-founds Neuralink, arguably his most interesting company, which is developing implantable, brain computer chips in order to integrate the human brain with AI, about to start a trial run with people with ALS, amazingly. In 2017, he founds The Boring Company, an amazing name. It's a company trying to create low-cost freight tunnels. So leave aside Twitter for the moment, which we'll get to soon. Right now, we have SpaceX, Starlink, Tesla, Neuralink, Boring Company, and of course, Twitter, which we'll get to, what binds all of these projects together? You know, if Musk's origin story is being the sort of abused kid drawn into sci-fi and comic books, wanting to save the world, help us understand, Walter, what binds all of these seemingly disparate projects together?
1: There were three great missions. He came away from that dark corner of the bookstore, when he was a kid with no friends. And he said, there were three things I absorbed from my sci-fi and comics. One was that humans had to be space explorers. We had to get back so that we could become multi-planetary. We could go to Mars. And that was because consciousness may be unique in this universe. And if we confine it to one planet, we'll be... Now, these are not the things you and I worry about as 17-year-olds. But he wants to make life multiplanetary. Number two, he wants sustainable energy. He just realizes that the planet's not going to survive with a drill and burn type energy system. And so he wants to create electric vehicles, solar roofs, power walls, and things that will get us that way. The third great mission that he sets for himself as a kid from reading Isaac Asimov's robot stories, is we have to make sure our robots, our artificial intelligence is beneficial to humanity rather than harmful to humanity. I used to think that those three great missions that he would talk about were the type of pontifications a goofball does for podcasts or pep rallies of his team. But over and over again, even in quiet moments, It would almost be an incantation, which is, if we don't get moving, we'll never get humanity to Mars. Or if we leave Microsoft and Google to do AI, the robots are going to destroy us. And I came to believe that, at least he believed, that those were the three great missions that unify what he did. And there were times, you know, it seemed totally ingrained into him.
0: You write this in the book. At first, I thought this was merely role-playing, the team-boosting pep talks and podcast fantasies of a man-child who read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy once too often. But the more I encountered it, the more I came to believe that his, Elon, sense of mission was part of what drove him. While other entrepreneurs around him struggled to develop a worldview, he developed a cosmic view. Yeah, I would just love for you to reflect a little bit more on where that comes from, because a lot of these great, men and great women, you know, have some kind of catalyzing experience maybe in their younger eras, often tragic. And as you said, they take that pain and they turn it into propulsion. Why Mars, though, I have to be honest, like, and maybe this is a masculine feminine thing. But, you know, of all of the things Elon does, I think maybe one of the reasons that more of us are drawn to companies like Tesla and Twitter is simply because we don't have the scope of imagination to think about interplanetary travel and civilization.
1: Hey, man, it's the biggest adventure. We are a species that thrives on being adventurous at times. There's no reason, by the way, for anybody who's driven by money or a little bit of a worldview to start a rocket company. I mean, it makes no sense. His friends make a highlight reel of exploding rockets and say, don't do it, Elon. It makes no sense. But he believes we have to get humanity to Mars. Now, why Mars? I mean, he wants it to be multiplanetary. He wants us to explore. Part of it is because he's worried that something could happen to this planet and human consciousness would die out. But part of it too is he said, What gets people up in the morning? Now, maybe you say it doesn't get you up in the morning, but I'm one of those kids who remembers the 109876 and remembers Pad 39A and remembers when we sent people to the moon. And our little problems that we focus on now, even the ridiculous ones like the clown show in the House of Representatives or something, (laughs) we got to rise above that sometimes and say, yeah, but there's something bigger the human species could be doing. And that's space exploration. I mean, maybe it doesn't move you.
0: Well, no, I think it's a sign actually of, frankly, like civilizational decline that Bingo. That sense of adventure, that sense of like pushing out and pushing past boundaries, that is a sign of civilizational aliveness. And I think, in a way, the fact that Elon is so singular is a tragic sign or symbol of like where the rest of us are, at least in terms of this lane.
1: Absolutely. I mean, back when I was growing up, we were creating NASA, we were creating DARPA, the internet, and we believed in space and believed in frontiers. And now we get mired in the everydayness of our petty disputes. You know, and this, by the way, is not supposed to canonize Musk But those who demonize them also have to realize that there's nobody else who single-handedly has helped revive the notion that Americans can go to space. NASA grounded the space shuttle. It gave up going to the moon. And when Musk was first thinking of a rocket company, it was because he went on the NASA website and said, I wonder what the plans are for getting to other planets. And there were no plans. Now dismiss it if you want, but it drives him.
0: There's a few themes that sort of run through all of his companies. And the first one is the way that Elon works, which I think would be very, very different from sort of like the methodical CEO that a lot of people imagine. He calls it, or you call it surging. You have many chapters just with that word in the title, Starship Surge, Tesla Surge. What does surging look like? Explain to people his maniacal sense of urgency.
1: Yeah, he says a maniacal sense of urgency has got to be our operating principle. And let me tell you a story. One night and Friday night, it's 10 p.m., when I'm walking alongside him as he's he's inspecting the uh, assembly line for Starship, largest movable object ever made, this rocket he has down in South Texas. And we get to the launch pad, and there are only two or three people working on the launch pad. And he just starts asking Andy Krebs, who's in charge, why are there not more people working? And Andy kind of tries to say, well, it's 10 o'clock on a Friday night, and we don't have any launches scheduled and Musk just goes into that cold, callous mode, reams Andy out and orders a surge. And that meant that by the next night they had to have whatever in the book, I don't know, 200 people he wanted working at the launch pad, flying in from Cape Canaveral and from uh, Los Angeles. And he just says, "We have to guard against complacency. That's why, you know, NASA can't get rockets up. We have to have the fierce urgency. I've watched him over and over again when things are calm and going well to say, no, now we need a surge. I watch him standing late at night on a rooftop of a tract home in Texas where they were trying to install a solar roof and it wasn't working well. And he orders a surge where they have to do a certain number of homes in 24 hours. So that surge mentality is his way of, uh, excuse the language he said, it kind of extrudes the shit from the system. And that's that drama. But it can also extrude really good
0: people. I mean, take the example that you bring up of the tract house with the solar panels. I don't remember the exact details, but I remember a, a very hardworking character who I think is a former,
1: well, you tell us. Brian Dow, delightful guy. He was part of the surge at the battery factory in Nevada. He would walk through a wall for Musk. And early on when I first got there, I remember Musk summoning him in saying, I'm going to put you in charge of solar roofs. And then it's hard. It's hard to build them at scale. And night after night, Musk would be there watching him do a solar roof. And at one point, boom. He just decides, you're not going to make it. You're fired. And the guy, Brian, can't believe it. I spent a lot of time talking to him, figuring out what went wrong. But I'll tell you another little story. You're in Los Angeles now, right? Yeah. So I was just out there about four days ago. Remember the um, Starbase Friday night, 10 p.m. surge? I'm going to say something that Musk doesn't know. So there's that guy, Andy Krebs. He just reams him out, right? And Andy Krebs actually survives for a while must doesn't even remember he reams him out and eventually promotes him. But Andy's about to have a kid, decides, I just can't take this any longer. He's back in Los Angeles. I did a book event for the LA Times, and I see Andy Krebs walking up to me. I said, what's up, mate? He said, well, I left, but I got to go back. I got to go back. I got to be part of the mission. And so this is what you have to get your head around is that He's rough. But mission-driven people want to have that fierce, maniacal sense of urgency.
0: Well, that's sort of like a theme that also runs through the book, which is he is so, I mean, rough is an understatement with people, especially these young, bright-eyed, incredibly mission-driven people. I met a few of them, Ross and James at Twitter, who you they're pictured in the book. And yet they're willing to put themselves through absolute hell I mean a lot of these people are having like major GI issues as the result of being in proximity to Elon Musk
1: gastrointestinal I assume you mean yes they're, yes they're
0: like they're vomiting they're they're vomiting from the stress they're vomiting from what they're having to do and yet they're still doing it can you just give us a little bit of insight into why they are doing what they are doing
1: look they're Two different ways of viewing the workplace and, frankly, of viewing life. And when Twitter was right before Musk took it over, it was a very nurturing place. It was really flabby in some ways. It has, as we know, about five times as many people as it needed to. It had rooms for quiet reflection. It had yoga studios. It had mental health days, and it believed in psychological safety. That's actually fine. That's good. I worked at Time Magazine in the 1980s. It was glorious like that.
0: But I'm assuming there weren't rooms for psychological safety. There was more like martinis at 5.
1: That was true. There was a drinks cart that came around at, I think, 5.30, not 5. But, (laughs) you know, they make drinks for all the writers. So that was a nurturing environment. And you have on the other side of the spectrum... Many places in Silicon Valley where you're supposed to be all in, hackathon, 24 hours, stay up all night and crash close things. That's another type of all in environment. Each of us, when we run a company, has to say, where on that spectrum do I want to be? How hardcore am I going to push people? I remember Bill Gates in early Microsoft trying to fire his partner, Paul Allen, because he wasn't hardcore enough. Jeff Bezos in the early days of Amazon, people who believe in the hardcore way of doing things. And then there are people who believe, no, we need a work-life balance, We need some decency in our lives. We need people to go home Friday nights before 10 p.m. And you have to decide what type of company it is and what type of person you are. And I talked to one person at one of Musk's companies, and he said, when I was in my 20s, I sort of believed in that all-in, hardcore thing. I believed in the mission. I love staying up all night. I love the intensity. And now that I've gotten older, I'm thinking that's bull. I'm no longer there. You don't want it. So Musk demands the all-in, hardcore intensity, and he believes you can go work in other places, like Boeing, if you're not into that hardcore intensity.
0: After the break, from saving the planet to buying Twitter, why Walter thinks Elon did what he did. Stay with us. Okay, I want to spend a lot more time, if we had it, on the Sublime and the Star stuff, but I I need to talk about the not-so-Sublime, which is uh, the company formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. On April 25th, 2022, Twitter accepts Elon Musk's $44 $44 billion bid to purchase it and take it private. Tell us the story, if you would, about how a man obsessed with getting to Mars decides to purchase a microblogging platform because the kind of 24 hours leading up to the night that he decides to go public and says he makes an offer in a way sort of summarizes the very abnormal way that Elon Musk
1: functions in this world. Yeah, very impulsive. Uh, And there were multiple reasons he was interested in Twitter. He had some money because he had exercised stock options, paid more tax than anybody's ever paid in history, but still had lots of money left over. He said, what product do I like? He says, well, I love Twitter. I'm addicted to it. I use it every night. And it hasn't changed in the past two years. They haven't put up video. It's a bad technological product. Secondly, I think there was a psychological one. If you're bullied on the playground, and what's the world's greatest playground now? Twitter. You get to own the playground. Also, it would fulfill his vision of X.com, which we briefly touched upon, but 20 years earlier, he and Peter Thiel and others started a group of companies that become PayPal. He had wanted to keep it called X.com, which was his name for it, which was not only a payments platform, but a payments platform connected to a social media platform where you could post content, get paid for it, everything from WeChat to Substack to Medium to Twitter, all rolled into one. And he said, if I buy Twitter, it can be my accelerant to get to X.com and make it what it should have been. So on a frenzy of days, he flies off to Hawaii from Austin where we'd just been at the opening of the biggest factory there is, you know, Gigafactory, Texas, meets uh, a woman he was dating on, Natasha Bassett, the actress, in Hawaii, stays up two nights in a row sending messages back and forth to the management team at Twitter, becoming convinced they are clueless. Then he goes to Vancouver with Grimes and stays up all night playing Elden Ring. All the layers, keeps pushing himself to the next layer of Elden Ring until 5.35, I think, in the morning, at which point he gets through that final horrible layer of Elden Ring and puts it down and says, I made an offer, which is the impulsive, driven way... He ends up buying Twitter. Interesting thing is when the um, board of Twitter finally accepts his offer and it's gone through, I thought, okay, he's going to be excited. It was almost cold. He went down to a conference room in Boca Chica, Texas, where they were doing Starbase, which I talked about, where Starship is being launched. And there was a methane leak in one of the designs of the engines and he just spent two hours focusing on that. None of the engineers, they're all thinking about, man, you just bought Twitter, but nobody says anything. He focuses on the Raptor engine.
0: One of the things that I think is really admirable about Elon and pretty singular is that he doesn't set out to say, what do people want? I'm going to build it. He instead says, what problem does humanity need solved? And then he works backwards from the mission to come up with the business proposition, right? At SpaceX, it's clear. It's make humans multiplanetary and extend life beyond Earth. At Tesla, the mission is energy independence, getting off fossil fuels, making it affordable. At Neuralink, it's make our cognitive capacity so much bigger by combining our brains with computers. But at Twitter... It's a big question mark, right? When I, when I spoke to Elon when he purchased Twitter, he said he did it because I'm worried about the future of civilization. He says very similar things to you in the book. But I wonder if you buy that because we know that after Elon makes that offer, he tries to get out of it. You
1: no, know, I, don't, I don't really buy it. I buy the fact that he really wants to make life multiplanetary. And I really buy the fact that he wants to move to the era of electric vehicles and get us out of it. And I think you're absolutely right that he backfills a big mission and says, how am I going to pay for it? But I mean, first, it's a big mission. Make us multiplanetary. Then he says, oh, I can pay for it because I'm the only person who can get satellites into orbit and reuse the rocket, so I'll create an Internet in outer space, and that will pay for the mission. Likewise, with Neuralink, the chips in the brain, it's like, all right, I want to be able to mind meld us with our machines, but in the meantime, I'll cure ALS or Parkinson's or some neurological disease with these chips. With Twitter, you know, when I first asked him, I think it's in the book, he said, well, you're right. It doesn't really fit into any of my missions. And then he said, well, it's to help democracy survive. I don't think he had really thought it through, and I don't particularly buy that. I think it was... All those impulsive things I told you about, from wanting to fulfill his original vision of X.com to loving the Twitter product. And yeah, you're right. He had a lot of mixed feelings after he made the offer. It's like, why did I get into this mess? At other times, he was giddy. I get to do what I wanted to do with X.com 20 years ago.
0: If you could ask Elon, and maybe you have asked him this, if he could go back and undo the decision to buy Twitter, given the headaches it's caused in his life, do you think he would undo that decision?
1: I hope so. (laughs) And I also think, as we said about Musk, he has a variable, mercurial, multiple personalities. And there are times I know uh, right before he closed the deal and subsequently is like, boy, was this a waste of time? Is this a time suck? I should be focusing. As he says in the book, when he starts the artificial intelligence company, after having bought Twitter, that's his new thing, he said, the time I'm spending on Twitter, I think it's, probably not valuable time. I should be focusing more on artificial intelligence. But I think he realizes it's not been good for his um, legacy and it's probably not the best use of his focus and attention.
0: Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the Twitter files. Uh, I understand that this might be remembered as less than a pimple on the legacy of Elon Musk, but for honestly listeners and for free press readers, it was significant. And it's significant because you know it's weird to be interviewing someone whose book has my picture in it. And I talked to you sort of at length for this book, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that period just to set the stage to remind people: in December of 2022, almost a year ago now, I got a text from Elon Musk over Signal, got connected. To him through the venture capitalist Mark Andreessen. And it simply said, Are you interested in coming to Twitter to look at Twitter's archives, to look at the Twitter files? I was sitting there with my wife, Nellie, who works at the Free Press, with me. We were there with our three month old baby. And two hours later, we were on a flight out of Burbank to San Francisco because, like any other normal journalist in the world, we leapt at the opportunity. And over the two weeks that followed, my team and I were given access to the company's archives of internal communications. And we broke stories about the platform's Trump ban, how they came to that decision, about its shadow banning secret blacklists, about its interference in the COVID debate, something that we referenced earlier in this conversation, which sort of taken together revealed how a handful of unelected individuals at a private company arguably put its thumb on the scale to manipulate the public discourse. And you sort of very clearly document all of this on your book. Now, Elon says that the reason that he invited Matt Taibbi at first and then us subsequently to Twitter is because this was his version of a truth and reconciliation commission, that the only way for Twitter under the new regime, now X, to sort of recapture the public's trust was to expose the old regime. Now, do you buy that? In other words, if his argument for buying Twitter was I'm doing it to save civilization, but actually you're saying, nah, he probably bought it because it's kind of like his chance to sort of own the playground. Why did he invite us to Twitter actually?
1: He has a radical transparency that was surprising to me that reflected in the fact that he said, yeah, uh, all meetings are there. As you know, I was hanging out in that hot box room with the bad smell of Asian food or whatever, of Thai food, whatever they kept ordering. And
0: every greasy takeout in the every world. Every
1: greasy takeout in the world. And he's allowing me in all those meetings. And the same reason he's allowing you and Matt Taibbi to expose the files. He believes in or likes to think he believes in a radical transparency. As with many things with Musk, there's some, I won't say hypocritical, but conflicting things, where then he'll be banning, as you know, or suppressing certain journalists that he thought were doxing his location or God knows what. So it's not a simple thing with Musk. Uh, I will tell you the story of the night, I think you've read it in the book, but it was even hard to Figure out how to make it a narrative in the book, but that, I think it was like December 2nd, right? You were called yeah. to come up to Twitter. And that day, he's dealing with the whole notion of how to use machine learning to do full self driving from Daval Shroff. I think you met him in the hot box. He also has to come here to New Orleans. He almost forgot he had to come because he's meeting President Macron, who was here in New Orleans. So he's flying here to New Orleans. In the meantime, the lawyers, and you I know you helped expose one of the problems with the lawyers in the book, are telling him, you can't let Matt release all these files. It'll invade privacy, other things. And he's there dealing with Macron and trying to figure out how to overrule the lawyers— and then he's sending you signal messages, even though he doesn't really know you. I think he met you once, to say, come on up.
0: Once for two minutes, and I don't think he has any memory of it.
1: Right, and said, so, come on up, because I want you. I need more help. We need more help and, you know, with Matt Taibbi on these files. So you fly up, and if I remember that night, he's wandering you through the building, showing you the Stay Woke t-shirts, and in a giddy way, making fun of the wokeness of Twitter. And I don't know if you also were in the subsequent thing where he's sitting there with Deval Schroff going over what is going to become Full Self Drive 12 where Deval is showing him a machine learning version of taking a billion frames of video from Tesla cars and learning the way humans drive just as ChatGPT learns the way humans talk. And this is just an eight-hour period, right?
0: In many ways, you could argue a typical eight-hour period in the life of this man. And let's add on to that the fact that he has no stable home. When we were there, he was sleeping on, I forget if it was the seventh floor. I think it was the seventh floor at that point of Twitter. the
1: yeah, seventh floor, semi, is what had been a nice, sweet uh, room in Twitter. And they discovered there were showers there. So he decides, I'm going to live on the factory, so to speak. I'm going to live in Twitter. Now... This sounds maybe to his fans a noble thing, and it sounds to many of us a totally nutty thing, but it's not guaranteed to give you more equanimity, and he was not uh, sort of operating on you know a calm basis during those weeks.
0: One of the things, Walter, that I've thought a lot about since that pretty, for me, singular experience, not for you, you've Interviewed and met almost every powerful man that's walked the face of the earth in the span of your life. But I've been thinking a lot about sort of the pitfalls of what's called access journalism, right? The idea that when you're dealing with a source that has information you want and that you need and that you have decided is in the public interest, you need to work with that source and keep them engaged and not isolate them or alienate them or piss them off in order to get the information you want. But there are trade offs. And I want to give you an example. We got to Twitter at, I think, midnight on that Friday. The next day, it was me and Nellie and Elon, and that was it. And I remember very distinctly, I had gotten like a donut from Starbucks. It was half eaten. He walked into a conference room at 11.30 and said, can I have this? And it was just the polar opposite of every very powerful wealthy person i've ever met that is just insulated with assistance and like has their broiled salmon and greens brought to them at noon he's like eating old pizza sushi and donuts and i just that really really struck me about sort of the way he functions anyway the first day we were there this is before we had seen a single document and we said to him do you want to sit down for an interview um and he said sure and he was very you know game for it and had a very cordial first 30 minutes of the conversation. Then we get to the subject of China. And the question I asked was essentially, how do you respond to critics who argue that your business interests in China, especially by way of Tesla, come at the unfreedom of Chinese, especially of Uyghurs? And at first he gave a pretty defensible answer. He said, well, look at the phone in your pocket. Look at the computer you're typing into. Look at the clothes you're wearing. It's not like Tesla is alone in somehow carrying the torch for oppression. It's the our entire economy. So many of our goods are dependent on it. But then it turned and he got very, very uncomfortable. And he told me that he had to suddenly fly to DC for a matter of national security importance. And then it kind of fell apart from there. And before he sort of walked out of the room, he told me that I should be very careful about what I say about China and Tesla because, in his words, it could cause grave harm to his companies. And it was clear to me in that moment that I sort of needed to leave the subject of China, subject that we publish on a lot here at the Free Press and that I've been passionate about for a long time, sort of for another day, that China was a longer-lead story, we could tell it another time, but right now I needed to grab as much information about Twitter as possible while he was giving me access. The reason I raise all of this is I wonder, did you have trade-offs like that in your reporting, where you decided, I'm going to leave this naughty subject to the side for the sake of the broader story that I want to tell on this day?
1: No, no, no. I never did, and it never came up. But I certainly tell the story of you and China in the book, which is an example of where you just tell the story on. It. And by the way, you talk about access journalism. It's also, in his case, we call it access capitalism, which is you need access to China, so you're going to pull your punches some on China or do it with velvet gloves. And so I think business people who do business in China, and for that matter Saudi Arabia or for maybe even Louisiana or whatever, you need access if you're a business person and you make trade-offs and that's in life can be problematic. I tried very hard in terms of my journalism not to make trade-offs. There were things he did not want to talk about, beginning with his father and... um, I just kept pushing on the door, kept pushing on the door. And there's almost nothing I left out of the book, out of any fear or because it was a trade-off. When I say almost nothing, I think the only two things were he has, as you know, five teenage children, one of whom was very relevant to the book, Xavier, who had transitioned and become his daughter, Jenna. And the transition, he gets his head around, but not her extreme anti-capitalism, thinking all rich people are bad and wanting never to see him or talk to him again and changing her name. Obviously, he said that pained him more than anything other than the death of his first child as an infant. And so that had to be in the book. And Griffin is in the book, who you probably know, who has said, fine, you can quote me and use me in the book. And he has an autistic child, Saxon, and with the mother's permission and Elon's permission, and Griffin said, okay, you can talk about Saxon because he says wise and sweet things that I think are important, like why doesn't the future look like the future, and Musk changes the Cybertruck design by sort of saying this is what Saxon tells me. But the other three kids, they're young, they were uncomfortable, some of the things I saw or whatever they didn't want in the book. And my wife told me, and it happened with Steve Jobs as well, you got to make some trade-off on what's important to the reader versus how much pain might it cause somebody under the age of 18 who's an innocent bystander. Mm -hmm. I don't think I made trade-offs with him uh, in that sense.
0: What about China, though, because... There's one section, I think it's chapter 50, about China called Shanghai, but that's kind of it. There's not a lot about that subject in the book. Tesla shipments from Shanghai, I think, account for more than half of its total sales. Did you ask Elon about the political ramifications of doing business in China, or did you feel like this is a personal biography of Elon, and so it's outside of the scope of the book?
1: Well, I mean... You did mention it's more than a 600-page narrative, and I guess you could probably say, oh, why didn't you take out the Neuralink part and put in more about China? I do have them in that chapter going toe-to-toe with the Chinese, especially on their demands that it be a joint venture. I did talk to him, and like a lot of business leaders, and I know your head's not there, but you can say Tim Cook, you can say Bob Iger, any of the others you would know, They feel having a more workable competition with China rather than a provocative relationship is better because we're two huge economies that are going to have to coexist. So China is a complicated issue, and I think Musk is somewhat typical of major business leaders He's extremely typical,
0: but someone like Peter Thiel would say the idea of believing that we can do business with China is the equivalent of picking up pennies in front of a bulldozer. So there are very different views in Silicon Valley. I just had wondered if it had come up.
1: And I look at very different views in Washington and, frankly, very different views within this administration from two months ago to now. Um, I don't have an easy answer there. I feel the same about Saudi Arabia for what it's worth.
0: Yeah, I think the difference is that one of those has uh imperial ambitions and, and one of them doesn't. One thing that I noticed is how scared people are of Elon Musk. People are very, very scared to say no to him or to confront him. I won't name names, but you quote some very cringy, sycophantic texts and things that people around him say to I him. By
1: name. I want people to see it.
0: Yeah, it's it's very, very cringy. Um And it makes sense, right? This is someone that a lot of people can make a lot of money off of by riding his coattails. And I remember my heart racing before I criticized him on Twitter for kicking off journalists and being hypocritical. I knew he would get mad at me. I knew his fans and there are legions of them would swarm me. And I knew I would lose access to the Twitter file story. And I certainly don't have the security Elon Musk did. I did it anyway. I felt it was the principled thing to do, but I was scared to do it. Did you ever fear pissing him off?
1: No. But by the way, I told the story of you in the book doing that because I thought it was admirable. And I told the story of Yoel Roth doing that, and it was admirable. I mean, not Elon's reaction. I guess it was in the back of my mind that he would turn, he could or would turn the flamethrower on me at some point. But I had all the reporting by the time I was writing the book. I don't need to be his pal these days. He says he's not even read the book, That you know, that he jokingly said that when I ran across him a few weeks ago in Austin, I hadn't sent him the book. and. Uh, he said, should I read it? And I said, no, you shouldn't read it. And he now jokingly says, I told him not to read it. So that's the one piece of advice I gave him. He can be just brutal at times and people are afraid of him. But I do show that in the book and I show what people do who survive that. Look, there's so many examples of, all right, I'm going to make the next generation car a robo-taxi with no steering wheel. Over and over again, people have to say no to him, turn him around, give him the facts. I can name you 20 times like that, where, including that night you were there in December, where he's saying, no, we're not going to use a complex machine learning algorithm. And they keep showing him how to do it. So uh, my book is supposed to be a narrative of how people deal with him. It's not about me and whether he's going to turn a flamethrower on me
0: much has been made of sort of Elon's, whatever we want to call it, red pilling, rightward turn. We're not going to call it conservative because it's much more complicated than that. And I think, you know, if we're looking for a reason for it, sure, we could look to his addiction to sort of funny right-wing meme culture. But I think we could also look at like his relationship to the White House and the Biden administration. And it's hard not to notice how much the government has singled out or targeted Elon. First, there's the fact that the Biden administration, and you document this in the book, completely ignores Tesla and its praise for other electric car companies that produce like half a dozen cars while Tesla's producing hundreds of thousands. That definitely pisses off Elon. You capture that in the book. But then there are actual government probes happening right now. The feds are currently suing SpaceX for not hiring illegal immigrants or refugees. The SEC is going after Tesla. It sure seems like Elon Musk is getting targeted because of his politics, or at least you could imagine that he could feel that way. What do you make of the fact that the federal government seems to be training a lot of its attention on Elon, even as other parts of it are dependent on him and his companies.
1: Yeah. Obviously, he feels there's a vast conspiracy to take him on from the SEC to the FAA to whatever. I am at the other end of being a believer in vast conspiracies. I'm like Ben Franklin, that three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. There's no vast conspiracies (laughs) happening. I think that there is a mindset among both regulators and bureaucrats, but also people from Elizabeth Warren who says he's dodging taxes to people who are probably regulators at the SEC that, shall we say, aren't favorably disposed to him. But I don't think, even though he does think, that it's, a top-down, the White House has decided, let's get Elon and instruct all of our regulatory agencies to be against him. I think if you're a regulator and a bureaucrat and you may be sympathetic to a more uh, progressive ideology, you're likely to go after Elon Musk. And I'll tell you something. Elon Musk gives them a lot of ammunition. I mean, he skirts regulations. He does things that are unsafe. He questions every rule and requirement and tries to get around things. So I'm not totally surprised that he's the target of legis- of uh, regulators. If I discover through some next version of the Twitter files where people open up the federal government's internal communications that there was a lot of, let's see how we can go get Elon. I would be surprised, but not absolutely surprised. I think it's just regulators being regulators.
0: We're heading into a major election, obviously. Elon has made it very clear that he is interested and invested in politics. He was at the Mexican border with Texas Congressman Tony Gonzalez. He used the platform X, formerly Twitter, to launch Governor Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign with David Sachs. He dabbles into politics a lot. And, you know, if the story of old Twitter and the Twitter files reporting revealed it, I think, was about the biases maybe of the former overlords of the company. The story of new Twitter seems to be the exact same story. It's just different biases in different directions and really less of a handful of employees and more of the biases and prejudices of one man. How are you thinking about the way that he is using this platform in the run-up to the election? And do you think he grasps the influence that he could have over 2024.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't think it's a great idea that he's putting his thumb on the scale and reposting and amplifying people who say hateful things, say bad things. Sometimes people who are- Are
0: anti-Semites.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, who associate with anti-Semites. I don't think any of his own tweets- are specifically that way, but he's amplifying that stuff, and it's toxic. And when he says that the ADL was the cause of all the advertising boycott, no, advertisers don't want to be in a toxic hellscape, you know, putting Pepsi Cola or Chevrolet, you know, in a toxic hellscape. So it's, I just think that's bad. It's not in his self interest, it's not in the interest of the country. And I think it was a good idea to open up the aperture at Twitter to allow more speech, especially speeches from more on the fringes that had gotten repressed. But I think it's a really bad idea for him to be putting his thumb on the scale and amplifying people who I think are harmful to civil discourse.
0: One of the things that is maybe the craziest (laughs) about this man is how chaotic his personal life is. He has been married three times to two women. One of them he married twice. He has 12 children with four different women. And one of the things you reveal in your book, and it's it's almost like a Jerry Springer episode, is that one of the leaders of Neuralink, this very interesting woman named Siobhan Zillis, uses Elon Musk's sperm to get impregnated with twins. She is in a Texas hospital... Giving birth while down the hall, a surrogate pregnant with Grimes's third child with Elon Musk's sperm and her egg is giving birth at the same time, and yet Grimes, the mother of three of Elon's children, has no idea. Did I get that right?
1: And they they don't know that they're each there. And I tell you, that was Thanksgiving. And he's dealing with these emotional things, and he loves emotional storm as well as professional storm. But that emotional storm even was too much for him. He decides he has to leave Thanksgiving or the Friday to go back to the SpaceX factory uh, near Los Angeles and deal with some problems with the manufacturing of the engine, which certainly were not real problems. But I think at that point he realized he'd rather deal with the simplicity of rocket engines rather than the complexity of human emotions.
0: But what does it tell us about this person's judgment that he would keep this a secret from, you're right, they were never married, but someone who's really a partner in his life? Why did he do that?
1: Look, he has really bad emotional uh, receptors, ability to deal with human emotions, and— He has a love of drama and it's not the world's prettiest sight and that's why it's in the book because you've got to say, man, this is a cautionary tale. But he does not deal well uh, with other people and the emotional turmoil that surrounds him. On the other hand, he likes emotional turmoil. As one of his wives said... He associates emotional turmoil with childhood love.
0: Walter, you just spent two years with, I think, one of the most interesting people in the world, if not the most interesting. Do you like him? And what do you think people most misunderstand about Elon Musk?
1: There were moments when he was fun to be around, as you saw. Probably a quarter of the time you were with him, you thought, hey, I like this guy in a way. And there were times I was awed by his engineering genius, which is something, you know, we don't talk about as much in podcasts, but in the book, it's really important to figure out how did he make the Raptor engines work, not just how did he escape the Texas hospital when he's having children to do so. You got to keep all that in mind and try to figure out what we don't do very well in this day and age. Shakespeare does it beautifully, but since then, we haven't been able to do it which is hold conflicting thoughts in your mind about a person who can do molded out of faults. They have deep faults, but they're also molded in ways that they harness those demons sometimes. So when I'm with them, there were times it was kind of interesting and fun. It was always interesting.
0: Kind of interesting. I mean, this is the most interesting thing in the world. Right,
1: and that's why I don't like when people say, oh, I'll never read that book because he's bad. Yeah, but life is interesting. This guy's interesting. Well, like wasn't the first adjective that comes to mind, but compelling, interesting, sometimes sometimes inspiring when he was totally into trying to inspire people on the larger mission, but also very off-putting, repellent at times. I try to let the reader, scene by scene, and they're kind of fast-paced scenes, see all of this. Each reader will make his or her different judgments about each thread in the book. But I give you enough ammunition that if you really want to hate them, boy, you'll be reinforced. If you really want to admire them, you'll be reinforced. And if you want to be like me to say, okay, there are lots of threads in this fabric and they're interwoven well. And we have to be grown up enough that we understand light and dark strands and try to... See them, even if they're ones we don't like. The book is a narrative, it's a fast paced set of cautionary and inspiring tales. And if you truly just want to hate them, or you truly just want to be a fan that can, says he do, does no evil, fine, go buy a different book. But if you want the most interesting person around today and the complexities, And you'll end up feeling like I did, I think, which is at times repelled by what he does, and at times a little bit awed by what he does, and at times laughing.
0: The line you put at the front of the book is part of Elon Musk's monologue from SNL. And he says, to anyone I've offended, I just want to say, I reinvented electric cars and I'm sending people to Mars in a rocket ship. Did you also think I was going to be a chill, normal dude? Which I sort of think sums it up. Walter Isaacson, the author of the new biography called Elon Musk and of so many other incredible biographies.
1: Thank you, Barry, and thanks for all you do.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation, if it made you mad or frustrated, or maybe if it inspired you to go out and buy a Tesla, or if it made you rethink owning one in the first place, that's all great. That's the point of what we do here. Share this episode with your friends and family and use it to have a conversation of your own. And if you want to support Honestly, there's just one way to do it. It's by going to the Free Press's website, thefp.com, and becoming a subscriber today. We've quadrupled our output since October 7th, and that takes money. So if you have $8 a month to spare because you believe in our work, it would really go a long way. See you next time.